Thank you for those encouraging, encouraging words that uh, we talked last week about the storytelling and parables and how Jesus transitions into that because of the way they appeal to the whole person through metaphor and imagery. Music has much of that same way that when theological truth is embodied in song, uh, that uh, both the way it is written, the way it is portrayed, and the, the music, it, uh, it reaches and helps communicate in ways that simple teaching sometimes does not. So it's one of the reasons we're exhorted in Scripture to sing to one another. It was just done for us with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so it's a thank you again for ministering to us in that way and for all of you, and just as we sing together to praise the Lord every Sunday morning. If you were to ask for an example of one of Jesus's parables, you are probably likely, if you said, what is the first parable that comes to mind? The one that would probably come to mind with most persons is the parable of the sower. Maybe not exclusively, there might be a few exceptions, but it's certainly a common one. Even if it didn't jump to mind first, you would be familiar with it. However, asking someone what the parable of the sower means will likely get you a variety of responses. Even Christians have not always agreed on the meaning of the parable, or at least the limits of the meaning. Some have strained the limits of language to try and wring from the text, meaning that it was really never intended, allegorizing every possible aspect of the passage. One church father, for example, labored over the phrase, a sower went forth to sow, spending a great deal of time trying to understand what did this mean, and concluded that it must be a reference to Christ's incarnation. But are the Jesus's parables really so esoteric? Are they really so hard to understand? We discussed last week that they are intended on the one hand to conceal the kingdom of God, specifically to conceal it from the unbelieving and the unrepentant, but conversely, they're also meant to reveal and instruct the faithful disciple concerning the kingdom and how to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus' own words highlight the importance of drawing near to listen and to obey to understand and to practice. So we want to ask this morning, as we continue our study of the parable of the sower, how does this impact me as a citizen of the kingdom of God? If I claim to be a believer, if I claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, how does that impact me? And both in my thinking and my understanding, as we draw near to understand it, but then in how I live and what I do with it. What instruction does it have for me with regard to my daily living before Christ? This morning we're going to look at Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower from Matthew 13 to his disciples as we answer the questions, what does this mean and how should I respond to Jesus' teaching? So if you haven't already opened your Bibles there, you can open them to Matthew 13. And we're going to... Read verses 1 through 9 and then jump down to the explanation in verses 18 through 23 to just help set the context in our minds this morning. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down. 
and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. He spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Down in verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only, it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let's pray as we turn our attention to the study of this parable in Jesus' words this morning. Father, as we have already acknowledged, we give you thanks and praise for our ability to gather here this morning in peace, recognizing the conflict that has erupted in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters there, as we have already this morning, and we just lift them up once again, asking for your peace and for your comfort. Father, as we turn our Attention to your word this morning. Father, would some of the seriousness of what is going on in the world cause us to consider with even more seriousness your words to us. Help us to have that eternal perspective, to understand that what we are studying this morning, what we are looking to understand, are words of life that have bearing on our eternal destiny. Grant us ears to hear and ears to listen. In your name, amen. As we learned last week in our introduction to this section, Matthew 13, it, this marks a significant shift in Jesus' ministry. A, a shift in really primarily in emphasis, where specifically, within regard to his teaching, you know, Matthew notes that he began speaking to them with many parables. Prior to this time, Jesus' use of parables was less frequent. But now, parables take a central role in his preaching of the kingdom of God. He doesn't only use parables, but he uses a lot of them. As we learned last week, parables serve that twofold purpose, to both reveal on the one hand and to conceal on the other. To further condemn the unbelieving by highlighting their lack of understanding, 
while at the same time to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to true disciples of Jesus Christ who draw near to him for understanding. And so as we continue our study of the parable of the sower, we see the disciples drawing near to Jesus as he explains its meaning. So let's lean in together this morning and listen to Jesus' explanation in order that we might further increase in our understanding of the kingdom of God and really recognize what this teaching, what this parable demands of kingdom citizens. Verse 18 opens with Jesus' call for the disciples to hear the parable of the sower. But Jesus is not referring to the story itself. He's already told the story. He told it earlier that day. Rather, he's talking about the meaning of the parable of the sower. Down in verse 36, Matthew notes that after teaching that day, after he had spoken to them in many parables, he returned to the house and with the disciples, and it was there that he began to answer their questions, that he began to explain these parables as they drew near to him to understand it. He began to unlock the understanding and the meaning of these parables. Verses 10 through 23 are really out of order chronologically. This is purposeful in Matthew's presentation as he wishes us to understand the purpose and the nature of these parables that Jesus began to say prior to introducing the seven others that are in chapter 13. Matthew orients us to what Jesus is doing so that we would better understand the parables that are going to be presented. Now here in verse 18, what is obscured and left out in a number of English translations is that verse 18 opens with an emphasis or an emphatic second person plural, you. Or as we like to say, y'all. Well, living in California, I tried to explain to my fellow seminarians that despite the caricatures, our southern dialect is really quite sophisticated, particularly in that we have maintained the second person plural, y'all. But verse 18 opens with this direct address to his disciples. Y'all, listen up. Pay attention. Now, if you've ever had a mom or a dad or someone in authority say, listen up, you know that this means more than just hear the sound of the words coming out of my mouth. It means understand. It means comprehend. It means put feet to those words. Get busy with what you hear. When we say to a child, why did you not listen to me? We don't mean that they didn't hear the sound of the words. We don't mean that they put their hands over their ears to avoid hearing. Rather, we mean, why didn't you obey based upon what you heard? Why didn't you internalize it? Why did you not change your behavior? Why did it not alter the course of your actions? We're asking, why have you disobeyed? Why have you saddened me? Why have you created this breach in our relationship by not hearing and obeying? And so when Jesus says, you hear, we need to approach Jesus' words with the same level of seriousness and sobriety. As those who claim to be children of God, disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to lean in and listen. Listening with an ear to obey, to put feet to these words. To deepen our relationship with Christ. Chapter 12 ended describing events that took place earlier that day, probably sometime late morning or maybe late afternoon, early afternoon. And the last thing we read in 
chapter 12, before Jesus moves to the shore of the Lake of Galilee, was teaching that identified the family of God as those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And reorienting us to the intimacy of this new family and relationship. And so it's no accident then that the parable of the sower illustrates and identify those who are in fact doing the will of the Father in heaven and contrast them to several other types who are excluded from the family of God. Jesus calls this the parable of the sower. This is not the parable of the soils as it has often been called, but the parable of the sower. The emphasis and the focus then is on our relationship to the sower who graciously casts the seed abroad. This is the reminder that the Lord is gracious, that He is abounding in mercy, that He is wishing for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In fact, looking back at verses 3 and 4, you can see that there, there is no effort at efficacy. He is casting abroad. The seed is spread widely. As Mark and Luke identify, the seed is the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom. It's a reminder to us to be careful about stinginess with regard to the gospel. To not prejudge motives and thoughts. To just be certain somebody will turn you away to reject something. It should not be as Jonah who attempted to withhold the message of repentance from the Ninevites because of personal hatred and bias. But rather to preach the gospel to any who will listen, not to prejudge or assume we know what the response will be. Jesus' explanation of this parable in verses 18 through 23 follows the same order in which he describes the falling of the seed and the, the types of ground upon which it fell. So we'll look at each of these. See if we can understand what Jesus is saying with regard to these different types of soil. But again, the emphasis is on the sower. And it specifically has to do with how does the different soil respond to the sower when the word falls? Well, the first place the seed fell was beside the road. Paths in Israel did not only run next to fields, but they would often run through them. This helps to explain how the seed ended up next to the road. Otherwise, you're thinking, man, he really did spread broadly. But paths would run right down the field where they would do the harvesting. There were the smaller paths, mostly footpaths. It helped them. They had to walk everywhere for the most part, so it helped to cut down on some of the travel. So they would run right through the, the fields. In fact, this explains Jesus and his disciples as they would sometimes walk, it says they walked through the fields plucking grain. It wasn't they were tromping down planted seed or fertile grain. Rather, they were plucking what was theirs. They walked along the path that ran through the middle of the field. And you can imagine over time, these paths, the more they were trodden, now a couple thousand years of trotting, that they're hard packed. It is that hard packed ground. So this is where that seed has fallen. And then we get the description of these birds. In Jewish literature, birds were often associated with evil and at sometimes even demonic forces. Here Jesus represents or says the birds represent the evil one or Satan. The lack of understanding here refers to not comprehending the spiritual demand of Jesus' words. 
like the hardened footpath, the hard heart cannot ingest the Word of God. As MacArthur notes, because it makes no penetration, the seed of God's Word is fully exposed to the enemy of the soul. And the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. The lack of repentance or of any sense of guilt and shame insulates this type of person from God's help and leaves him utterly exposed to Satan's attack. His heart has never been softened by remorse, never broken up by conviction of sin, never cultivated by the smallest desire for anything good, pure, and holy. This person is the fool of Proverbs 1.7 in Psalm 14.1 who says, In their heart there is no God. He is self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and in religious circles, self-righteous. On such a person, the gospel has no effect. It is veiled to hard-hearted unbelievers, as 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 describes. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 reads, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this is the sad state of unbelief of persons left to their own sinful desires and will. You see, no person rejects Christ and his gospel because someone forces him to reject it. They force it because they don't want it. No person in their natural state will ever want the gospel. Well, the camera pans from the hardened path. And Jesus next identified seed which has fallen upon ground, which on the surface looks promising. In fact, as this soil is brought into focus, you can even see what appears to be the quick budding of the seed. The human sower might at first rejoice at this initial response. But the heat of the sun soon reveals the sad truth. There is no true, permanent, deep root. It is shallow The description of rocky soil is not soil in which which rocks are mixed. Rather, it's soil which is very, very shallow because right underneath that is bedrock. And so it's shallow soil. On the surface, it looks good. It looks fertile. It looks just like the good soil. The seed even imitates the initial sprouting. But difficulty, pictured as the heat of the sun and persecution, reveal the true character of the soil of the effect of the seed in the soil, in this type of soil, there are no roots. As one commentator notes, the image of a root is a common ancient metaphor for commitment. Because the flora of Israel is often threatened by heat or drought, special attention is directed to the root as the part of the plant which guarantees the existence of the whole and it gives it stability. You see, there are some who will receive teaching with joy. They'll even come into church excited. Be amazed like they were at Jesus' miracles. Be impressed by the love of his followers. However, it's superficial. They are genuinely impressed. They are genuinely excited. But it is no deeper than shallow emotion. There is no deep-seated affection, no love for Christ, no willingness to give up all to follow Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way when he said many people fit this description. 
We see them in our evangelical churches. Their shallow hearts are attracted to the excitement of a place where much seems to be happening. They hear the gospel and seem to fit in. They even make a profession of faith. But when difficulty arises, just as suddenly as they once seemed to embrace the faith, they now fall away. Because they never were really born again. Just being in church, mouthing things you hear other people say, does not make you a Christian. Yours may be an extremely shallow heart. Your heart may be like rocky soil. In addition, we should recognize that much of this shallow sprouting is due to shallow teaching. Places where pieces of truth are taught, but not the whole gospel. The call to repentance, the understanding of sin, where this is absent, it is shallow faith. It is shallow teaching, which leads to shallow faith. Faith that cannot be rooted in the demands of the gospel. Now, this is not a caution against enthusiasm. Far from it. Just work to ensure that your joy and your commitment is as deep as it is wide. And it's an important reminder for us to not confuse excitement with fruitfulness. Well, the seed that fell in the rocky soil sprouted quickly, but it never yielded fruit. It withered away rather quickly. But the next soil upon which the seed fell remained longer. The seed grew for an extended period of time. It even appears to have taken root, at least by appearance perhaps showing the initial budding of fruit. Jesus describes seed that has been sown among thorns or weeds. Verse 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This one probably strikes us a little closer to home. As Lloyd-Jones knows, the third type of soil stands for a strangled heart, a heart strangled by things. I've shared this example before, but it stands repeating. When I was a, a young teenager, I met an older pastor who was from the former USSR. And of all the things that he said, the thing that has stayed with me the longest was this observation while he was touring and spending some time in the United States. He said, I don't know how you can be a Christian in this country. You have too many things. You see, weeds do not strangle you at once. But it's a slow process of draining your life from you, of weakening your spiritual resolve, of slowly shifting your allegiance and your trust from God toward things. Of shifting your affections from Christ toward money and the things of this world. At another place in the Gospels, you may remember and recall the rich young ruler who approached Christ and said, what must I do to be saved? You see, he had done all of the other things. He had kept the law since he was a young man. He had outwardly done everything he could. But what Jesus wanted to do was test his affections, much like God tested Abraham. When he said, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac, are you willing to give up what you hold most dear? And so he said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And we know the story. 
He went away sad that day because he loved his riches too much. Like the child who will not relinquish their hold on a strand of fake pearls to be gifted real ones, or like the child who cannot be bothered to come in from making mud pies to enjoy a real one. We are enamored with the empty things of this life. And it takes a supernatural act to lift our eyes from this world up to the cross and to follow Christ. But don't be mistaken into thinking that this is only an issue of salvation. It certainly is. And that's the primary emphasis. It's describing the different types of soil and the result. But this is a perfectly appropriate place to describe how this same effect or how this, these same, the same things, the desire for wealth, the concerns for the things of this world, begin to choke out the spiritual vitality of even a believer. While riches clearly can keep many from coming to Christ, the deceitfulness of wealth affects the joy and the spiritual fruitfulness of believers. Notice Jesus' description, by the way. He says, the deceitfulness of wealth. What is it that makes wealth deceitful? Where's the lie? The deceitfulness... The lie is that wealth brings security, that it will bring happiness, that it will bring joy. Solomon recognized that this was a lie. That's why he set out on his quest for meaning and true joy in Ecclesiastes. This is one of the richest men, wisest men, most successful persons to ever live. And he recognized that the things of this world were not enough. It was empty. A desire for wealth and material things drains you of your spiritual vitality and your focus. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, you may remember the efforts of Wormwood to encourage the new Christian to spend much time with his materialistic friend so that he would be distracted by the things of the world. As Screwtape said, writing to Wormwood, you will be punished for having let him become a Christian. But he said, but let us do our best. Next best thing is get him preoccupied with the things of this world. In this country specifically, this is one of the most effective ploys of Satan to make us unfruitful. Jesus taught about the worry of life in the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember that from chapter 6. He'll teach, even, he'll teach again explicitly on the problem of wealth in Matthew 19. It doesn't make money bad. Money is not the evil. The love of money is. The deep-seated affection, desire, preoccupation with it is. But it is dangerous. Handle it with care. Just as you wouldn't hand a loaded gun over to a child, be very careful with money. The true disciple must fight to not allow the concerns of this life, the desire for safety and security in this life, to take precedence over following Jesus. It doesn't mean there's not real issues and real problems that we all go through. Some of you are coming here this morning, you've got real concerns, real weights, real pains. Those are real. We're not ignoring those. We're not denying those. What we're saying is that it's not going to be solved with the things of this world, with more money, with more entertainment with more stuff. Believers in Ukraine right now, 
are facing very real issues and concerns. But these problems should not cause the true believer to despair of all hope and to flee from Christ, but rather to turn to Christ. There's one pastor, Ukrainian pastor, who noted about why he was not going to leave the Ukraine, even though he was offered the opportunity to flee when it became obvious that the Russians were moving in. He said, if the church is not relevant in a time of crisis, it is not relevant in a time of peace. Many of those believers have chosen the gospel of peace over and against a temporary peace in this life. There are real concerns in this world. There are real worries. It's a matter of whether you allow those things to steal your joy and so drown out the gospel and cause you to lose hope. Like Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, when his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked on water. He wasn't concerned with the wind, the waves, the storm, or anything else. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus, and he looked and saw where he was, and he started to pay attention to the smashing of the waves, the roar of the wind, what happened? He began to sink. The moment he took his eyes off Jesus, the fear and the worry of the immediate situation overtook him, and it began to sink beneath the waves. As much as we like to think, we would not do the same, that when we stepped out of the boat, we would lock our eyes on Jesus and we would be unmoved. The reality is most of us would never even made it out of the boat. Peter's response when sinking was the only right response to our weakness. When he cried out, Lord, save me. When we find ourselves overwhelmed, discouraged, downcast, we should cry out like the psalmist, like Peter, saying, Lord, save me. This is not weakness, but strength. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that self-sufficiency is strength. True strength comes through recognizing our need and dependency upon Christ. We saw this in the Beatitudes. To turn to Christ, recognize your spiritual poverty, that you can't do it. You can't find joy by yourself in this life. You can't make it through this day, this week, through the struggles without Christ. True strength comes through recognize our need to depend upon Christ. choking of the weeds or the thorns prevents one from being fruitful. Whether it prevents one from ever being fruitful or whether it begins to limit the fruitfulness of a believer. As one pastor noted, this is an area too often ignored in churches. And I believe that the major strategy of every church must be to wake up people and to help them realize how they are wasting their lives on what ultimately will not matter. From the seed which was from the seed that showed a little bit of promise but was choked out, Jesus now turns our attention to the seed that fell upon good soil. Soil where the seed of the gospel could take deep root. Soil which either previously prepared or which would shortly be turned over and broken up through the repentance and poverty of spirit. Verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This situation describes the person who hears the word and understands it. 
And so it says he bears fruit. There's no false start, no choking out of the fruit, but abundant fruit is born out of this person's life. This is a, another important reminder that true faith is always accompanied by fruit. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Never alone. It is always accompanied by evidence of faith and salvation. To say one is saved or to claim to be saved but to have no fruit is a contradiction that exists nowhere in Scripture. And note here too, the fruit is obvious. You do not have to scrounge around to find it. It is abundant, far beyond the produce of the world. People in the world can do some good, at least surface level it looks good. In the land of Egypt, when they planted, they could produce a crop that was sevenfold what they would plant. In Rome or the surrounding regions of Italy, they would produce a crop that was five to sixfold what they would plant. But only the gospel of God can produce 30, 60, 100-fold. In other words, the fruit of the believer stands in contrast to the best of good deeds done by the unregenerate and unsaved. Disciples of Jesus are, by definition and through the power of the word, fruitful. And yet we still live in a world where Satan, persecution, wealth, and worry are everywhere. And so it is by God's merciful revelation that we follow Jesus. But we do so vigilantly. Recognizing that Satan, persecution, wealth, and worry are everywhere. And so we must be aware of the spiritual dangers that surround us. There's really a number of minor points that could be made from the fourth and final soil. First, one of the reminders is don't be discouraged. What do I mean by that? Well, only a portion of the preaching of the gospel bears fruit. If this was true for Jesus' ministry, where here in this illustration only one-fourth of it bore fruit, only one-fourth of the soils responded. And how much more in every other age? And not only is the command not to be discouraged, but we can also understand to be encouraged at the bearing of fruit. Paul speaks of this when he speaks of the joy that is brought to him of seeing believers rejoicing in the truth, responding in the truth, the word of the Lord sounding forth from those to whom he has spoken. Secondly, we're reminded that the only sure evidence of a genuine reception of the Word of God is spiritual fruit. This is what John works through in 1 John. But what is spiritual fruit? It's a good church term. What is it? Well, first, it's not to be confused with excitement or emotions, even though those may attend or accompany real fruit. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, he had a helpful distinction where he describes emotions which may carry you along versus affections, which are those deep-seated, closely held beliefs and, and feelings that are cultivated carefully through time. Spiritual fruit is described in Galatians with that list of 
What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did you notice what's not in that list? Charismatic or a strong leader, a good teacher, a good public speaker, an energetic personality. What else was not in that list? Attending church every Sunday, reading the Bible, listening to sermons. In fact, recognize the fact that many of those who fit the the bill for the first three types of soil were ones who heard dozens and dozens and dozens of Jesus' sermons. Listening to good teaching, certainly good, but in and of itself, it is not fruit. Thirdly, we notice that the presence of fruit is the important thing. On the one hand, the amount of it matters. On the other hand, it doesn't. What do I mean by that? Well, there should be enough so that it clearly differentiates from the world that it stands in contrast, that we can rejoice in the fruit that has been born. But on the other hand, there will be different levels of fruit that is produced in the life of different believers. They will vary among believers. And all these points are important, but they are secondary to the main point, which is the most important, and it is this, that only the open heart, the cultivated heart, that receives the preaching of the gospel is saved. Not the hard heart, not the shallow heart, not the strangled heart. The only heart that ever receives the truth of the gospel and is saved is the heart that opens itself to Jesus and his teaching. And this is most important because unless this has first taken place, nothing else matters. And so the important question that we have to ask this morning is do you have an open heart? Are you receptive to God's truth? Have you allowed the teaching of Scripture to settle down into your life? Has your heart been broken up by repentance so that you have turned from sin and placed your whole faith in Jesus and begun to produce the Holy Spirit's fruit? If you're not sure or you do not believe you have, don't think that your case is hopeless. Now, I say that, but I'm also going to tell you this, you can't do anything. There is no amount of work you can do that can break this ground. Thankfully, it's not up to you because there's a divine gardener. He can break up the hard ground. He can uproot the rocks. He can remove the thorns. And that is your hope. It's not in you. It's not in anything that you can accomplish, but in the gardener. And so pray to the gardener, pray to Christ. Ask him to give you a new heart. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you have a hard, a calloused, a grasping, a covetous, a frivolous heart. And ask the Lord to save you. As the prophet Ezekiel notes regarding these new covenant promises, it is then that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And if that is your true desire, you will never be turned away. 
For even the ability to desire such a thing shows the work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is already working within you. Turning back to those who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel, who have repented of your sins and continue to do so. The lesson and reminder of the parable of the sower is to walk vigilantly through life, recognizing the many spiritual dangers that exist. While we may have been inoculated through the power of the gospel against spiritual death, if we do not keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we run the risk of spiritual sickness. The choking out of our faithfulness and fruitfulness because of the deceitfulness of wealth and worry of the things of this world. These spiritual dangers will limit our fruitfulness that we've looked at this morning. As we noted last week, your fruitfulness will be directly proportionate to how close you are to Christ, to how much you abide in the vine. And we describe what that looks like, what it means to abide in the vine. So are you drawing near to Him? Are you abiding in Him? Are you loving Him the way that He has said He wants to be loved? And what does He say? If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So let's follow the example of Peter when he first stepped out of the boat and then when he looked back at Christ and to follow the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews when he said in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's to that Jesus that we pray, to our mediator, our intercessor, our great high priest, who we cry out when we do begin to sink beneath the waves, because it will happen again, and you will need to cry out, Lord, save me. But the great hope and the great comfort is that he is there and he is waiting and he is by definition a savior. We're going to close in prayer. As we close, I'm going to spend some extra time praying through a list of prayer requests I received this morning from uh, pastors in Ukraine. So these are some very specific things that we'll be praying for. These are brothers and sisters who are living in the midst of the trials, the persecutions, that, and the affliction that comes in this life. We have graciously up to this point been spared so much. And yet it's good to remember and to reflect and to recognize how quickly things change, just day by day. We were reminded of that this week, how fragile life is. So join me in praying as I close out our time, as we turn our attention here in closing to praying for these specific requests and needs from our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Father, we do thank you for this parable and the parable of the sower, the reminder it brings to us, the reminder to hear and to obey. Father, for any whose hearts have not been softened, that have not been plowed, that have not been prepared, I pray that that would take place this morning and that the word that goes forth would be planted and would bear much fruit. 
Father, we do pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We know that there's much suffering, there's fear, there's concern going on. Father, for those who are helping to house both church members and members of the community, some of them in underground parking shelters, in basements where there's cold, there's no heat. Father, we pray that persons would not get sick, that they would be kept healthy. We pray that they would be able to find the generators that they're looking for to be able to create power some electricity and some heat. Father, we pray for the unbelievers in the community who have come together with these believers as they've reached out to them, as they've let them know that we have a place for you. Father, we thank you for the gospel that is preached three times a day as they are together. Father, we pray specifically for this family of three, these unbelievers who have come to this church for shelter. Pray that the peace of the gospel would reign in their hearts as they hear the word for the first time, perhaps, that their hearts would be softened. Father, we pray for pastors in Ukraine, many who are carrying just a heavy burden, that they would be able to do it with joy and with grace. Pray for wisdom as they make plans, as they clean up, as they wrap up their Sunday services, as they prepare even for next week, as they look to minister throughout this week, as in some cases some of them will be doing quick funerals that were not expected, as parents bury children. Father, for other pastors who've described the needed supplies, how scarce they are, we pray that they would be able to find the food, the water that they need as there's a curfew in place until tomorrow. As it's become difficult to get the needed items. Father, for those who are there in Kiev, that you would protect them. They have asked for prayer for the defense of Kiev, for wisdom, for strength, and for courage for the Ukrainian army. Father, mostly they ask that, and we ask along with them, that believers would shine as beacons of God's grace, their love for the lost, and they'd be able to encourage their brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that your word would go forth through the teaching that's going on. Pray that you would keep the internet stable. Thank you for the answers to prayer that we've already seen in that. So they'd be able to continue streaming those services to persons who are under curfew, unable to gather together. Lord, we, as we were reminded this morning, reading from Psalm 140, you protect the innocent. None of this is happening outside of your control and your sovereign care. Father, we do pray for the end to the plans of evil men. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.